Greetings and salutation, history poppers. Well, not just one salutation, many salutations to all of the lovely people who are listening in every week to History Pop, where we talk about history, fictional, fictionalized, or otherwise, in the intersections with pop culture. This is Courtney, your host, and I'm so excited to get to talk with you today about our continuing series on the musical Six. Dun, dun, dun. All you want to do, all you want to do, baby, is going to be talking about six today. <laughs> so, history poppers, have you given any thought as to what baked good you would be? Honestly, I think that if I were to pick a baked good for myself, I would probably go with a good strawberry shortcake. It combines a lot of wonderful things, and depending on how you make the shortcake, not too overly sweet, but you got a good little sweet kick in there with the whipped cream and the strawberries. But anyway, slightly off topic. <clears throat> anyway, so today we're going to start off on a fun high and then get to, I honestly don't even know what emotion it is other than just empty by the time we get to the end of today's podcast. So continuing the trend of going through the musical and talking a little bit about how each of the songs function to give us a picture as to who these women were in their historical context and how we are reinterpreting them for today. So today we're going to be doing, just like we did uh, last time, we started off with XY. And then did No Way, where we got to talk about Ach, Mi Favorita, Catalina de Aragon. We did uh, the songs for Anne Boleyn, Don't Lose Your Head, and Heart of Stone for Jane Seymour. Today we're going to be focusing a bit on uh, the next two, yes, two, of uh, six, two members of six. It's going to be Anna of Cleves and Kay Howard. And of course, we have to do our interlude with the House of Holbein, yeah? So we'll start off uh, going in order in the musical, Hans of of Holbein. (laughs) House of Holbein. We can do our German, it's fine here. House of Holbein, moving into Anna of Cleves' song, Get Down. And then ending off with Kay Howard's All You Wanna Do. So stay tuned and we'll have a journey today. That much I can guarantee you. Just a reminder that there are no spoilers in history, but there will be in this podcast. Stick around. Divorced. Beheaded. Died. Divorced. Beheaded. Survived. And tonight we are. Welcome back to the House of Holbein, yeah, where we're going to be talking about six today. Uh, six is in six, as in the German number for un, du, that's French. Wow. This is what happens when you get a lot of different languages mixed up. I have a smattering, not a lot, of languages. I can talk to preschoolers in bunches of different language because I had, uh, I used to actually teach preschool in a very international classroom. And so I would learn like one through ten or whatever and lots of little phrases in all the languages in the classroom. So of course we had German, we had Icelandic, we had French, we had Romanian and Japanese and Mandarin. 
uh, Spanish, all sorts of fun languages. So sometimes I get them a little confused. So it's not un, deux, trois. It'd be eins, zwei, drei, vier, fünf, sechs, sieben, acht, neun, zehn. There you go. That's your German lesson for the day. But anyway, so we're talking about sex, as in the number six, Auf Deutsch. Uh, and today we're going to start off with the house of Holbein, yeah? Uh, so just to begin with, we are going to be talking just a touch about Hans Holbein the Younger. So Hans Holbein the Younger uh, came from a school of painters, uh, the Northern Renaissance movement of painters actually, and we're not exactly sure when he was born, probably around 1497. So roughly contemporary uh, with Henry VIII. And he was born in Augsburg, which would have been in the Holy Roman Empire, which is a smattering of a bunch of different uh, provinces and duchies and things like that that are each ruled by their own hereditary uh, duke or whomever, and usually called a prince, actually, within their own principalities. Ha ha ha, principality. And at this point in time, where we're talking about is going to be like the 1540s, uh, late 1530s, early 1540s, we have a bunch of different uh, religious mm, tensions going on uh, on the continent, especially in the Holy Roman Empire, which is kind of like the uh, cauldron, if you will, of where all of these different things are happening. So we've got Martin Luther, and we've got uh, John Calvin, a bit, a couple of generations, uh, about a generation early with Jan Hus over in what is now Czechoslovakia, well, not, not what's now Czechoslovakia, um, the Czech Republic. Uh, so we have a bunch of different religious leaders who are taking their own sort of understandings of what had been the Catholic Church and then reinterpreting them in a way to try to have it make more sense for the time period in which they were living. And so we have actually what leads to wars of religion in France and leads to the deaths of many, many people. And we also have that happening with the Thirty Years' War in the 16th in the 15th, sorry, 17th, I can do numbers today, in the 17th century, uh, especially on the continent as well. So we have these struggles between what become known as the Protestant peoples and the Catholic peoples. And now, of course, they're all Christian and they all see themselves as the correct church, but we have these tensions that are building in the Holy Roman Empire, which is when uh, Hans Holbein comes of age and he is in his late teens, early 20s, by the time we get around to the birth of Martin Luther as this figurehead, as this leader of religious change and movement. And the Reformations in a Ville de France. Anyway, <laughs> so Hans Holbein is growing up in what we think of as Germany today. And he, one of the reasons actually that we don't exactly know exactly when he was born is as much as he was a boy he also wasn't really at his birth would have been seen as very important he wasn't the son of a duke he wasn't uh, a prince he wasn't part of the nobility he was born to uh, to a printmaker actually uh, and so he followed in his father's footsteps as an artist and as a painter, as a printmaker. So decently well off, 
but he's also a man who made his own way in life as well. So he had to step up from under from his father's businesses and learning those trades, and he eventually became friends with Erasmus of Rotterdam, who was a major humanist scholar at the time. And he had he was actually a person who had a sort of community of letters, and he had a community of scholars who he would be in contact with, who he would write back and forth with. One of his very best friends was Sir Thomas More, who was a uh, chancellor for Henry VIII, a very able minister who refused to sign the Oath of Supremacy and was executed for it, eventually became a saint. So uh, not doing too bad for himself. Uh, but anyway, so Erasmus of Rotterdam was a major writer at the time, uh, collected a whole bunch of different talented people around him, and one of those was Hans Holbein, who he had to, uh, who he painted portraits of, uh, and then by ingratiating himself and proving his talent to Erasmus, Erasmus then introduced him to Sir Thomas More, who then brought him into the English court and showed off all of the wonderful paintings that he did of his own family that uh, More had commissioned. And so then he came to the attention of Henry VIII. And this is, of course, just a very truncated um, story of Hans Holbein's life. But so we have... Uh, Hans Holbein then coming to the attention of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, and uh, so he becomes a court painter for Henry VIII, and this is actually a pretty good place to be because then you have pretty uh, consistent uh, commissions, so that way you have a decent source of income, you have a few different patrons who will have, have lots of money at their disposal and would like to have uh, these paintings to show off their majesty, their patroness, their largesse, their benevolence. And so uh, Hans Holbein was employed as the king's painter. He had an annual salary of about 30 pounds. Now he, of course, even though Hans Holbein's images of people at the Tudor courts are the ones that we honestly really think of, if you think of a portrait of Henry VIII, you're probably thinking of one by Holbein. Uh, or uh, his famous portrait of Jean Seymour, So, or even Prince Edward. So we have all of these iconic images that come to us from the Tudor courts that are all Hans Holbein for the most part, but he actually wasn't the highest painter, paid painter at court either. But he was regularly employed. Uh, and Hans Holbein was also the one who was sent to uh, the continent to be able to paint Henry VIII's possible future brides after the death of Jane Seymour. And so uh, three of the portraits survive to us today. Or actually, do three of them survive? I know that three were painted. Uh, so we have Christina of Denmark, who I have talked about before, and I think I'm going to be talking about in a future cast as well. Uh, and then we have two sisters, Amalia and Anna of Cleves. And so the House of Holbein, yeah, uh, takes us then into... Holbein going around the world, and I love how the world is Spain, France, and Germany, which I suppose if you're in England, those are pretty exotic places. I mean, you are an island in the middle of the water away from the continent, and then, you know, you have these centers of culture, especially in France and Spain. Uh, Germany was made fun of as kind of a backwater, but it really wasn't. Um, <laughs> it wasn't more than England was. Uh, you know, it certainly wasn't France or Spain, but they have their own stuff going on too. But anyway, so he goes to Spain, to France, and Germany. And I love this. So when the House of Holbein comes on, we have this massive 
tone change in the musical. So we just got done having Jane Seymour have her big, powerful ballad about how no matter what, even though she knows Henry doesn't actually love her for herself, he loves her for her son, that she will always love him. And boom. And then we have, say how's of Holbein, yeah? Because we need to have a new bride come over to marry Henry VIII. And so it turns into this sort of live Tinder demonstration where you swipe swipe left or swipe right and so we have uh the other queens all dress up they have it black lights come on and they have the massive sunglasses and massive ruffs and it's interesting actually how the song talks about how we understand how they understood beauty at the time and what was expected of women if you wanted to be beautiful in the Tudor era. And so some of this is kind of anachronistic. Uh, so we have uh, talking about uh, the corsets and the cinches and the vasta waist over nine inches. And that wasn't exactly true. Um, corsets, yes, of course, squeezed in bits and stuff like that, but we have no actual evidence that it moved people's organs around or it made it so that they couldn't breathe and stuff like that. Those rumors actually came about much later, more in the uh, Hanoverian or Victorian periods. Although, to be fair, that's actually kind of the same thing. Victorian is a Hanoverian. But anyway, uh, and so there is no... As far as we know, there's a bunch of cultural references to it where it's a literary device where you have the woman who is overcome and she faints and, you know, because she can't breathe because of her corsets and stuff like that. Um, but so that's really not a thing. I mean, you have corsets and they're used to kind of, you know, help keep and support and, you know, help with your posture and things like that. But they're not necessarily going to move your organs around or make it so that you can't actually breathe. Uh, and... So we have your courses, we have your cinches, and so yes, your nine-inch waist, totally not a thing. As much as, you know, Laura Ingalls Wilder's mom apparently had a waist that her dad could put his hands around, which I'm like, holy crap. That is actually a detail that I remember uh, reading from the Laura Ingalls Wilder books, Little House on the Prairie, when I was a kid. I'm like, holy crap, that's tiny. And yes, my hands aren't exactly huge, but geez louise. <sighs> But anyway, uh, and so, so what? The makeup contains lead poison. And so we do have a bit of that going in the early Tudor period, but that is actually much more associated with the reign of Elizabeth than it is either the reigns of Mary, Edward, or Henry, either of the Henrys in the Tudor period. And because Elizabeth herself actually was known for wearing this lead makeup. So you have this very pasty, almost clown white, like white complexion. And, you know, she used it to cover up pox scars because she had gotten deathly ill and didn't come away unscarred. Poor lady, but at least she survived. And so the white lead makeup was a way to cover all of that up and give you a very strong foundation for your makeup. Um, but that also, it means as much as it was used and was getting into popularity, it wasn't there yet at this point in time in the early 1540s. And, but yes, they did use lead makeup, which probably led to people's deaths and they didn't realize it. Uh, you know, pain for beauty and all that sort of fun stuff. Uh, and so then moving on in, and actually there's not a whole lot to this song. It's just basically a fun German synth pop interlude. <laughs> but yes, so we must make sure that the princess look great. For blonde hairs and you just add a magical ingredient from your bladder. Yes, 
that's totally a thing because this is actually one thing that is highly accurate looking at the time period for the early Tudor period especially. The idea of fair and how fair means beauty because fair, F-A-I-R, is a word that could mean two different things. It can mean fair as in beautiful as in like, you know, I am the fairest of them all, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall, tell me who's the fairest of them all. The beautiful uh, meaning of it was something that was understood at this point as well. But fair can also mean as in light, as in lighter skin, blue eyes, and blonde hair. And that was really the standard of beauty. If you wanted to be seen as beautiful at the Tudor courts, you needed to be light-skinned, light-eyed, and light-haired. And the magical ingredient from your bladder urine would be something that could bleach your hair and that's something that i'm sure that people did uh and that's something that it goes back you know millennia centuries people trying to alter their appearances and that's something that does work i wouldn't recommend it at home i'm not gonna do it myself and you heard it here kids don't do this at home <laughs> Uh, and actually, uh, urine has been used, uh, was it the ancient Egyptians who used it as a toothpaste? I suppose it would clean your teeth. Yay. And here we go with my tea again. Um, but yep, yeah, so then try these heels. So high, it's naughty, but we cannot guarantee that you'll still walk at 40. Uh, so high heels also... As high as they're talking about, not really a thing at this point in time. You do have heels. So when we're thinking heels so high it's naughty and we cannot guarantee you'll still walk at 40, aren't high heels as in like what we think of today? Uh, though the heels that we think of today think of like Barbie feet. Whereas, you know, like you have this massive high heel <laughs> and your toes are very close to the ground what they would have had at the time would be chopines i don't know if i'm saying this right or uh, chopines in england probably and they are more like platform shoes and so think back to like the spice girls fashion in the late 1990s where you have very high platform sneakers and that's basically kind of what these were uh now originally they were used to keep the women's feet especially out of muddy areas. They were very popular in Italy, and then they came across uh, the continent, you know, through France and Spain, and then all the way to England. Um, and actually, in, Ven in Venice, uh, the law, actually, because the height of these things was getting so out of control that they were limited by law to three inches. Uh, of course, people didn't actually keep to that. Uh, but what's also interesting is the fact that in the very early 16th century, Catherine of Aragon popularized these at the English courts when she brought them over from Spain, along with her farthingale skirts. And that's also something we don't talk a lot about. But anyway, so these heels then aren't going to be what we think of as high heels today. And that doesn't mean that they really were all that comfortable to walk in. And usually, you're not going to be doing a whole lot of walking if you have very high, just like today, you're not going to do a whole lot of walking if you have a lot of high heels or if you're going to be wearing these platform shoes that are 9, 10, 20 inches. Those are there for show, to show your wealth, the fact that you don't have to walk around, uh, you know, so that way you're not 
obviously you don't work people with uh, lower shoes or it can be the ones who, and more comfortable shoes can be the ones who are tend to be people who have to walk and have to move and have to do things to earn money. So you could use these to bedazzle and bejewel them to show off your wealth and your incredible fashion sense. And, um, and actually, uh, they also are more popular as we go through the 16th century. And Shakespeare makes references uh, to them in Hamlet by joking about altitude and how high things are. And uh, so they are very much in the Elizabethan period as well. Uh, I don't know if they would have been comfortable to move in, uh, but... We do have, depending on how high they are, I think you could still move around and do things. So I, I, I had platform sneakers when I was in uh, middle school and high school. This also dates me thinking back to Spice Girls fashion. <laughs> uh, but, you know, after a little bit, you know, they're heavier than normal shoes, but you get used to them. And then you can you build up those leg muscles and you're able to do whatever you would be doing otherwise to a point. I mean, I never had platforms that were more than a couple of inches in total. It also helps that I'm short and it made me feel taller. Anyway, uh, so we have these chopines that were platform shoes that they would be talking about, not necessarily high heels. And that really honestly is, and I'm going to click around here to the House of Holbein lyrics, and that's really it. Uh, House of Holbein, so we go through that and we talk about Christina of Denmark. She is swiped. I, I don't know how Tinder works, but she's swiped to the side you don't want. I think she got swiped left. She moved left. Um, Christina of Denmark did. Amalia of Cleves was swiped left. And then <gasps> Anna of Cleves! Yeah! She swiped right! We liked her! And so then she leaves to go to English court and marry Henry VIII. And I love how in the show we actually do get to have a little bit of uh, a sisterhood between Anna of Cleves and Catherine of Aragon because they are the only two foreign brides to come over from the continent for Henry VIII. And, uh, well, not for Henry VIII, Catherine came over for Arthur. But regardless, uh, Anna of Cleves is talking about how one of the things that, you know, was part of her sob story is the fact that, you know, she had to leave her home when she was young and go and marry some man she'd never met and probably never go home again. And Catherine's like, same! <laughs> and so then they have this kind of bonding moment. And that's something that I, I know I've kind of talked a bit about in other podcasts, but it's something that is not talked about enough, especially because, you know, when we're talking about English history, we're talking about the Wars of the Roses, we're talking about the early Tudors, we don't have as many foreign brides as we do in other points in history because for most of English history that's the norm when you want to marry someone it's always for diplomatic or military or uh, monetary gains and so to do that you need to make alliances outside of your own kingdom and you do that by marrying someone usually a very high board and that also brings prestige to you and so that's not really all that talked about as much as I really do think it should be. Uh, but anyway, so after we get done with House of Holbein, yeah, we go to talk to... So we move to Anna of Cleves. And so, spoilers, she basically takes herself out of the running to be, uh, you know, the leader of the girl group because her life really wasn't all that bad. As she talks about, she's like, oh, yes, I have all of these riches that I own. 
that I get to control, and I don't have a man around to run it for me and tell me what to do. How tragic. <laughs> and all the other one, uh, queens are like, really? Really? But yeah, uh, so Anna of Cleves got to have the best deal out of all of them, honestly, I think. Uh, because she does. And, and this song does a fantastic job of showing that and how she was in control of her own life and how, you know, as much as she's still at the whims of the ruling sovereign for making sure that her uh, lifestyle is maintained, you know, making sure that she gets money if she needs it, because that was part of the agreement. You know, it is a contractual agreement. And, um, but she still is the one who gets to be in charge of her day-to-day -day life. And it shows that she's actually probably pretty happy. She's the queen of her castle. Which is pretty exciting. Uh, and honestly, there's really not much more to this song than that. Than the fact that showing off that she gets to live her own life how she wants to. That she is the queen of her castle. Uh, she goes hunting. That was something that Anna of Cleves did a lot of. Because she did have acres and acres. And she got to be the one to go and do it whenever she felt like it. She had... Uh, she went to court... Uh, several times she was invited by Henry to come back to court, and when she was there, she was the second lady of the land. Uh, she was the first lady after uh, whoever was married to Henry at the time, so that's a pretty good position to be in. She got along pretty well with Kate Howard. Uh, they, ha they danced together. They had a wonderful time. Not so sure she got along with Kate Parr. Uh, very different sort of religious leanings, I imagine, but... Yeah. Anywho. But, um, so she went to court. She enjoyed herself there. She got to be in charge of her own life. And that's really what you get from the, um, and is it, and I'm not saying this as it is, it's a bad thing that there's not much more to the song than that historically, because this is the interpretation that a lot of historians now, especially, honestly, going even back to the Strickland sisters back in the Victorian era. So in the 1850s, we have Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland, who were really the first, in a lot of ways, to look at the Queen. They, they published a multi-volume series of the lives of the Queens of England. And they were the first to really pull together all of this work and to really have a focus on who these queens of England were. We'd had a smattering of biographies here and there, especially looking at, you know, like, like we've talked about before, the great men slash great women of history and how they were the ones who were the movers and the shakers of, and influencers. But we didn't really get a chance to look at the women who were behind the scenes. In a lot of ways, consort queens are behind the scenes. Uh, and that's how they enact their power and their agency. But uh, the Agnes sisters, Agnes sisters, the Strickland sisters in the 1850s were really the first to kind of pull all of this research together. And it is so much fun to go through and read these because I've had to do a lot of that while I'm working on my dissertation. And it's amazing that they have these particular opinions about these uh, different queens and these different women. And so, like, they love Catherine of Aragon. They absolutely adore Catherine of Aragon. They love Henrietta Maria, uh, who is another figure in my dissertation who is not a Tudor. She's a Stuart, technically. Uh, well, she's from the Bourbon dynasty in France, and she marries uh, into the Stuart family. To, she marries Charles I 
1625. So it's a little bit later than this. But so it's interesting to see who they love and who they don't. Uh, they don't love Anna of Denmark, who is uh, the wife of James VI of Scotland, who becomes James I of England in 1603 when the death of Elizabeth Tudor happens. But yeah, they actually do call her a vain and stupid woman. But they do like Anna of Cleves, and because they talk about how pragmatic she was and how she had this good common sense, and in a lot of ways she did. Uh, she saw which way the wind was blowing, and she did not want to be executed, even though it. I don't actually think that she was afraid of really being executed. It would have been a fear in the back of her mind that he might do this, but then if he does do this there will be hell to pay kind of like with Catherine of Aragon I think that there were threats that he might have her executed but I don't think that she ever actually believed them Mary on the other hand that would have been a possibility but I don't think that Anna of Cleves ever was really all that afraid of having Henry execute her because that would have sparked a massive diplomatic and international conflict so she was seen, especially then, and this is the image that we continue to have of her, and we do see that in the musical as well, and how, you know, honestly, she kind of had a really great life, and she would write letters to people at court, she would go to court, she would do charitable donations to different organizations, and she led a pretty good life. And that's what we get in the musical. That's what we get his handed down historically, starting really from the Strickland sisters and their biographies of the lives of the Queen of England until we move to uh, different biographies. And actually, one of the people who I know, uh, Dr. Valerie Schutte, is currently writing a new biography of Anna of Cleves. And I'm so excited to get to read it when it comes out because it's the first scholarly biography that we've had of Anna of Cleves in a while. There's been... Uh, various popular biographies, which are great and wonderful, and they are a wonderful way to get into learning about the history, uh, because it is a good synthesis of a lot of different sources and other secondary sources as well to read a biography and to get a general idea. But the thing about history is that you use these sources to make arguments and to show this change over time, or how things remained the same in sometimes over time. And most popular writers aren't trained to do that. They don't have that particular eye. And so that's why I'm really excited for Valerie's biography of Anna of Cleves to come out. And that's why I'm also really excited for, I mean, I'm doing a biography of Catherine Varagon in a different series. It's not going to be a full book, just a chapter, but that's okay. I'm still really excited about that as well. I'm working on my dissertation. I don't have it done yet. I'm not a doctor yet. <laughs> Uh, but so we're going to have this cool new, uh, hi kitty kitty, uh, biography of Anna of Cleves coming out that's going to probably, I don't know, but I'm assuming reinforce this idea of Anna of Cleves as a intelligent and as a mover, as an intelligent woman and a mover and shaker at court. So now let's move on to all you want to do. So all you want to do is Kate Howard's song in the musical. And just like with the tonal shift that we get from Heart of Stone to House of Holbein, we have another major tonal shift 
throughout this song. Like it starts off just like the other ones where it's a really poppy, really fun, and it slowly makes the audience more and more uncomfortable. And I do talk about this actually with a special guest who I have uh, forecasted, foreshadowed, foreshadowed. Uh, one of my friends, my BFF, who actually went with me to the show, and we talk about this, and so it's going to be the final podcast in the sixth series. And so we talk a lot about the emotional response to this song. And as the actress so very succinctly says, it has four verses. And that's why she should win, because it builds and it builds and it builds. And there is just this... Like I said before, almost an emptiness to it because once you're once you're done, because it is this emotional release, and not necessarily in a good way. It's draining, and it's a beautiful moment of theater, and one that I really wasn't expecting when I was going in to see the show the first time. And it's it's interesting to hear the fan response to this. Uh, I was waiting in line after one of the shows to get some autographs because it was really cool. The uh, the actresses who performed stayed after when it wasn't it wasn't actually expected. It wasn't announced or anything like that that they were going to do signatures, but they just did it because they're apparently wonderful human beings. And I was waiting in line, and one of the ladies who was next to me was talking with her friends and talking about how. If you just listen to the soundtrack, or even if you don't even just listen to the soundtrack, a lot of people, until they actually see it, don't understand Kate Howard's song. And I think that's actually very true. Uh, If you have just listened to the soundtrack, it's a very different sort of experience than getting to go and see the show. Uh, One of the things that I love, there's these uh, animatics that are popping up all over YouTube where people will do a little bit of an animation work so it's very rough animation to either songs or scenes from their favorite shows or there's a lot of it for critical role as well uh there's a lot of artist communities uh who are working on these things and so six also has this there's a small group of dedicated people on youtube who are creating these animatics and if you watch these you can tell who has seen the show live versus who's only gotten the chance to listen to the soundtrack. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's a very different experience. And so all you want to do starts off as a very poppy vibe. And Kate Howard, uh, you know, I love it. She comes in, she's like, I think we can all agree I'm the 10 amongst these threes, which is also interesting because Kate Howard wasn't ever really talked about contemporarily in her time as the most beautiful of Henry VIII's wives. Uh, She, I think, in a lot of ways, she was kind of like Anne Boleyn, where she, and it also helped that she was very young. Uh, By the time she actually gets to court, she's in her late, mid to late teens. And so she has that beauty of youth that so very quickly fades. And then it's filled with force of personality, which is what I tell myself. (laughs) Anyway, but yeah, so you have the flowering of youth. And so she is seen at the time as very much in her prime. And so that's probably where part of her allure and her beauty comes from. And, but I think that she also was like Anne Boleyn, where she had this energy about her that 
made her not necessarily intriguing like Anne Boleyn, because Anne Boleyn was a woman of mystery who you just, those eyes drew you in. But I think Kate Howard was really fun. And I think that she was just, from my understandings and my readings, just a genuinely sweet person who was a people pleaser and just wanted to make everyone around her happy. And that led to her death as we, we don't actually see that in the song, but we do get it afterwards uh, with, <laughs> with the fact that she does talk a bit about her execution. And, and one thing that actually also confused me about the show is that we never actually talk about the fact that so many of these women are related uh, fairly closely. Uh, she was first um, cousins with Anne Boleyn. She, uh, she and Anne Boleyn were cousins, not first cousins, but I think second cousins with Jane Seymour. And so we have these very close relations uh, that, I mean, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that they grew up with them or anything like that. But it's never talked about in the show. And uh, so Kate Howard comes in and she sings her song. And she starts off talking about how she was 13 going on 30 and all of these different sexual encounters that she has. And so her first music teacher, Henry Mannix. Uh, and there's a lot of sexual innuendo in the song that I didn't get until I watched it live. Because they do a good job of making it hilariously obvious. Uh, you know, he plucked my strings all the way to G. <clears throat> Went from major to minor, C to D. And that's actually how she sings it in the show. Um, so we do have a lot of sexual innuendo in the song. And if you think there might be an impossible, an allusion to something that could be a sexual joke, it is. That that's what it is. And so if you think about it, it's obvious enough. And... So for the first chorus, we have the fact that she is connecting with these men and she's trying to make them happy. And I think that she thinks that she's in love with them and she wants to be with them forever and ever. And that's not what happens because the only thing they want to do is... And so her music teacher, and we've talked about this in her history and stuff like that. And so I'm not going to delve into all of that. Um, but then we get into Frances Deerham, who was working for the Dowager Duchess. And, you know, I don't necessarily think that she actually was his assistant, but she did have a sexual relationship with him. And once again, she feels like this is it, that he cares so much because he is paying this attention to her. And it, I think this does a good job of showing just how young she was. So then we move on and, uh, we have her in the story working with him and working closely with him and becoming a sort of protege, but her becoming more and more disillusioned over time with how men only seem to want. And so she decides to take a break from boys and you'll never guess who I met. And I think in a lot of ways, this is where things make a turn for her. She becomes a lady-in-waiting. She actually was, you know, called to be a lady-in-waiting for Anna of Cleves and was there waiting for her when she arrived from the continent. And this is probably where she first met Henry VIII. And she served Anna of Cleves and things were fine. And then... Henry divorces Anna of Cleves and wants to marry her. 
and you know she is over the course of this song growing more and more and more frustrated and more and more disillusioned with the fact that these men they say they love her and they want to be with her but it's only so that way they can get and she was really hoping that each one would be the love of her life and each one would treat her right and so she throws herself into these relationships and you know when we get to Henry she doesn't necessarily want this and we kind of we get that as well with the so we got married Woo! and that's much more obvious in the show as well that it wasn't necessarily a yay we're married it's more like yay we got married and things are rough for her and so she has she makes friends with Thomas Culpepper and things are really great and she in her mind and I love how they do a good job of playing this off with the fact that for her this was just a friendship and I think that's probably how it started and so I talk about that in her background as well and once again we get this feeling of the frustration the desperation that this is all people ever want from her nothing about her just her body and that we keep going through the song and all you want to do all you want to do baby and once we get to the end is touch me when will enough be enough squeeze me don't care if you don't please me bite my lip and pull my hair as you tell me i'm the fairest of the fair and I talk a lot about the choreography in the final podcast of this, so I'm not going to spoil that, even though there are spoilers in history. Uh, there are no spoilers in history, but there are in this podcast. I'm not going to spoil the last podcast. <laughs> um, but so we have this growing disillusionment with just the world around her. And by the time Catherine really learns just how to survive, how to grow that thick skin enough to be able to have that as an armor, to be able to do the things that she needs to do to survive at court, she's executed. She doesn't have time to learn those lessons. She doesn't have time to learn how to play that political game. I don't know if she would have, uh, but in a lot of ways, her story is played off as this very traumatic and tragic one and that comes across so well in the show and how after she's done she automatically just like all the other queens do except for Anna of Cleves automatically assumes yes kitty is scratching his scratchy pad okay and so after her song is done, she automatically assumes, just like all the rest of the queens do, except for Anna of Cleves, that, yes, hi, kitty, that she's going to win. And so she starts thanking all of the men, all the powerful men who helped me get to the places where I am today. And it's really with Kate Howard that we have these really strong connections from the past drawn to today. And, you know, she makes these throwaway jokes, you know, like the powerful men who got her to where she is today. The uh, fact that 
you know, he, he lured me in with a job to get me into his chambers. It was a different time back then. And these really do a good job of beating you over the head with the fact that it wasn't a different time for some things. And while these things have happened to women basically forever and why is my cat crying I don't know but that should be like a meme like why is my cat crying like why is my kid crying and so drawing these direct parallels shows that in a lot of ways while these things have happened to women especially over the last centuries and in a lot of ways things hasn't changed things haven't changed in a lot of ways they have because now we can actually put a name put a you know a descriptor to this you know this is sexual harassment and we say that this is bad and we say that this is wrong and even though it is still incredibly difficult for women to be able to be believed and to prosecute the men who are perpetuating these acts against them, it's something. And it's a change. Jeez, cat, get down off the table. What are you doing? Yeah. I was making a really interesting point to the podcast. Are you done? Get off at the table. (sighs) Anyway. And so we have these concepts to describe it now that they didn't really have back then. And I think that that's progress. And it might not be where we want to be. It may not be the most ideal of circumstances but there is progress and this reminds me a lot of in the Q&A when uh, someone asked the queens you know what is something that you know what are lessons that we can take from six to apply to today and uh, Samantha Polly who plays Kate Howard said believe women and you know this is when she talked about how her character was sexually abused as a kid and how you know, this still happens today and we need to believe women that this is happening. And I do think that that is a major lesson that Six is trying to impart to its viewers is the fact that, yeah, these were queens. They were supposedly the most powerful women in the kingdom. And this still happens to them. So that, I think, is where we are going to end our show today, History Poppers. And uh, thank you so much for joining me today. And I do sincerely hope that you will join me next time when we finish off talking about the songs in Six and how they represent these historical women today. And I hope that you have... Wow, I'm sorry, I'm just watching my cat. and He's going absolutely insane. Uh, But once again, thank you so much for joining me. I do hope that this has been a fun experience for you. And I look forward to getting to talk with you again next week. So, So this is Courtney for History Pop signing off. It's been a pleasure. Take care. This has been written and performed by Courtney Herbert. Intro and outro music written and performed by Jonathan Colton and used under a Creative Commons license.